Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2023, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week. First up, well, before we get into the questions, want to say a special shout out to those of you that are watching live on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Also want to say hello to those that have faithfully listened and downloaded our podcast, our audio-only podcast version of the Roundup over the past uh, three or four years. Uh, it's been a pleasure coming to you uh, in your audio listening pleasure. And for those that are watching live, uh, thank you uh, for uh, making us a part of your international edification each week. So uh, as we do each week, we take the themes and questions that we develop here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, uh, 9 a.m. Eastern, if you subscribe via the email version uh, through our website at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Uh, fill in your details there in the subscribe link, and you'll get the email delivered uh, with the top social media and international ed news stories uh, each week that we put in digestible hot, hot takes on the various issues of new and news stories that we see each week. And then we pick uh, themes from those uh, that uh, come uh, come in the form of questions here on, on Wednesday, where we see those themes developing in some of the news stories, and we kind of cl uh, clump some of them together to come up with our questions and talk about a little bit more in depth as to how these news stories, these topics, these developments impact what we do in international education. So as, uh, as I mentioned, we do have the email version of the newsletter you can subscribe to via the website. Uh, if you prefer to get your international ed news via LinkedIn, we do have a LinkedIn version as well of the newsletter, uh, which I'll drop the links to in the chat. Uh, that has now over a thousand subscribers in and of itself. So we're really proud to be able to uh, meet uh, some of your international edification needs each week through the delivery of that newsletter. So thanks again for making that newsletter the success that it is today. And uh, last bit of uh, we as we do each week, we ask these three questions. Invite those of you who are watching live to contribute any comments or feedback that you have. But for those who are watching on repeat, you'll obviously be able to get the links to uh, each of these stories that we're covering uh, on and questions we're diving into uh, through the newsletter. So it's a good companion piece uh, to what we talk about here on Wednesday mornings, uh, Wednesday afternoons for, for most of uh, the world in the Eastern and uh, Middle, <laughs> Central, Eastern and uh, European, uh, African and Asian nations that catch on uh, to the Roundup. So thanks again for being a part of the journey. First question of the day, how does the new SEVP guidance impact recruitment? Now, this came down on Friday afternoon, as uh, SEVP guide, guidance typically does. Uh, came down, uh, actually Thursday, I think, uh, Thursday or Friday. And uh, it, uh, was the unex it was the expected news that uh, we knew uh, in the United States with the ending of, this, of the pandemic protocols that, uh, uh, that uh, have been in place that have impacted everything from border control to uh, in, uh, international uh, visitors to the United States needing um, needing to have in the past uh, a proof of vaccination before they would be allowed in. Uh, with all those pandemic era um, regulations 
expiring when uh, the government under uh, President Biden had indicated that as of May 12th, uh, that would be the case. The pandemic would officially be over and all regulations impacting uh, movement uh, one way or another would also be over. So uh, that has impacted us in a couple of ways. Uh, that um, the end of the pandemic means that regulations that were temporarily put in place back in 2020 that allowed for students to engage in online education who were already enrolled in U.S. programs to continue their degree studies uh, in online courses. That happened uh, for uh, 20, the rest of the 2020, 1920-1920 academic year, all of the 2021 uh, academic year, all of the 21-22 academic year, and even into this year, 22-23. So officially, as of the end of this uh, spring semester, uh, the requirements to uh, that allowed students to pursue who are in, already in the United States to pursue online uh, programs uh, due to their uh, due to their status uh, in the country, which normally requires only one or allows only one course per academic term to be online, uh, they have been able to uh, to take those online courses or hybrid courses. Now, um, the, with the end of the pandemic, uh, the uh, the anticipation uh, was that this uh, we would revert back to our old uh, the old regulations, which limit to one li limit students to one course online per academic term, so no more than three credits. Uh, and that has meant that uh, uh, university programs, we had we'd, uh, talked about this several times in the past, and there was a glimmer of hope that maybe a DHS would move slower than a slug and catch up with the rest of uh, rest of the world in terms of how education is now being taught and how educational coursework has been delivered. Uh, has been evolving, and but that acceleration happened dramatically during the pandemic when uh, forced a lot of institutions to rethink how they deliver coursework and forced a lot of programs to go entirely online. Uh, many are now in hybrid positions, hybrid mode as well. Uh, so that allows uh, some courses to be part of a course to be done in person, whereas others are uh, other parts of it might be taken online. So with the return to the one limit one course per term limit. Uh, international students uh, that are currently enrolled in fully online programs are in a bit of a pickle. Uh, there are some significant decisions that need to be made. Uh, and many ISSS offices, if they hadn't already been thinking about doing this, were already uh, kind of gathering information on their current international students and how they were enrolled, what programs they were enrolled, which of those programs were fully online, which were uh, which were hybrid, which were fully in person, uh, then uh, and how those are coded at individual institutions are, can make a difference in uh, what you need to worry about uh, most significantly. Uh, we're doing a, a, that kind of review at this moment at UNLV uh, in terms of identifying which students have are, have been in fully enrolled, pro, fully online programs, and who, how many are taking course more more than one course per term that we would need to check in with and make sure that they're aware of uh, what uh, next steps need to be uh, for that uh, for them to stay in status. Obviously, that's what every international student has and must do. Uh, to to achieve the benefits that they want of being in the United States. And that goes back to the heart of uh, why the regulation is uh, only one course per term online, is that 
uh, students are, uh, as part of their visa status, F-1 visa status, are required to be physically present in country. Again, there were some pandemic era uh, exemptions to that that allowed them to uh, take courses remotely from home and maintain their status so they don't lose time uh, uh, or potentially uh, opportunities for uh, post-study work opportunity through OPT. But uh, that has expired as well. So uh, physical presence is required as part of their visa status. And until the visa regulations are changed to allow for mul multiple courses being taken online, yet still be physically present in the United States, uh, that uh, we're, 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 those students are in a particular position where something's got to give. They got to either uh, universities need to make uh, adjustments to their programs that are offered fully online to allow for um, a maximum of one course uh, for that program, whether it's an undergrad or a graduate degree, uh, to be taken only one per one academic course course per term, uh, or to shift all of those courses that they would need to take to. And what we, we've done uh, and how our courses are coded in many institutions like this that have a portion of each class that is allowed to be done online, but then uh, there is a physical requirement for a course, for another for the rest of the course to be in person. So that typically allows the flexibility in, in how uh, students approach their education uh, in terms of how they take their classes. So that still allows them to stay within status. So what we're faced with now, um, we're doing an inventory of our, as part of a larger discussion of what's allowed and uh, not allowed for in-person education for students who were required to be in person to uh, to take classes as a part of their uh, immigration status. Uh, the, a lot of the con the switch to online was a matter of convenience uh, for a lot of a uh, lot of programs. Cost saving measures perhaps were involved uh, in delivery of programs uh, online versus in person. Uh, maybe some of that and easier to replicate as with the MOOCs in the past uh, in terms of being able to offer uh, courses to larger groups at once. Uh, but there, there's still some uh, significant challenges in that. Uh, we have a online education uh, or an educational compliance officer that is uh, we're going through a review of uh, potential markets for our online programs to be delivered overseas, specifically in in certain markets that we have to be aware of what the regulations are in given markets uh, related to tax, related to recognition, related to uh, insurance and other factors that go into the mix of uh, uh, being able to legally issue, uh, deliver coursework in country. There's infrastructures that need to be set up, tax implications as well. So uh, there's a lot that is riding when your uh, students are paying for something to be delivered in country and whether it's recognized by their home government and all of these things. So there's a lot that we need to uh, be aware of in the online space in general terms, but as it impacts, and that's one thing when it's delivered exclusively to uh, citizens outside the United States or to um, international students outside the United States, there are one set of regulations uh, or concerns that each institution should should take on board quite seriously. And another set uh, is uh, relates to uh, what what uh, what they can't do when they're in the country. And in the country uh, with that one course per term limit, uh, they are now able to take only one course per academic term again. So what do we do with the rest? So as I mentioned, our, we're undergoing this, in, this institutional review uh, to look at all of our programs that are fully online and 
having conversations with deans and program coordinators that uh, if they are reliant on international students for these programs, uh, one of two things will have to happen. They'll either have need to shift the delivery to an online online only, and that will ex exclude all current international students that are in country to from doing that program. Those students would have to return home if they want to finish that degree. Uh, there are also implications for uh, for those that want to uh, that want to maintain an in-person presence for their international students. They will have to make significant changes to the course offerings in terms of allowing them to be or requiring students to be in country and only allowing one course per term. Uh, fixing that program to allow uh, that to happen uh, in the sequencing of courses and all of that. There's a lot of challenges in, in making making those changes. So uh, there's a, a, quite a bit that international uh, admissions offices and uh, certainly international student scholar service offices need to be aware of in and are. are grappling with as we speak uh, in terms of what happens next. Uh, in terms of the recruitment aspect of this, and that's where I wanted to focus uh, a bit of a conversation now as we finish this question, uh, there are some positives uh, in terms of the implications, not directly of this guidance, but in terms of uh, thinking outside the box in terms of delivery of programs that some, uh, as I mentioned, we're exploring some online options for delivery of our programs in particular markets. We're looking at online English language uh, instruction delivery uh, to students that might already be interested in our programs, but we are aware that they don't have the minimum English proficiency to be admitted to a full degree program, but don't necessarily want to come uh, for a semester or year of expense, of living expenses, and just to take English that uh, we're looking at other models that we can potentially deliver the English uh, online. Uh, other programs that have gone fully online, again, might be uh, eager to uh, boost their international enrollments, but to do that, we have to go through a very significant review and uh, um, process to see if it's viable in the markets that they want to deliver it. Uh, so that's potentially changing the, the nature of how we recruit. On the plus side for students that are already in the funnel, that if they're coming in to programs that are on campus, uh, the revocation of this uh, online courses uh, allowance uh, is something that uh, it's, it's not directly tied to the revocation of that guidance, uh, pandemic era guidance, but it is tied to the revocation of pandemic area restrictions that the US government put in place. One of those was requiring uh, any entrance, uh, non-citizens that were entering the country uh, to have proof of, of vaccination status before they would be legally be allowed in. So uh, for us, uh, that is uh, uh, that's something that we we uh, we change in our, our our messaging out to students in, uh, in terms of after we they get their I twenties, uh, we can take out the requirement that U S travel restrictions require you have vaccination status proof of vaccination for COVID nineteen before you're allowed into the country. We can now remove that. It makes one less thing that these international students will need to do in order to enter the country legally. So there, there's a little bit of a plus side there. That's a, probably the only plus side that uh, I can. I can think that would apply across the board to everybody, uh, making it a little bit easier for students to enter uh, if they can get their visas and, and do all the other, cross all the other uh, T's and dot all the other I's that they need to before they can come. But that's certainly a plus. Uh, it will force a rethink, again, as I mentioned, for international admissions offices uh, in terms of for students that are already in the pipeline for programs uh, that they've been admitted to for the fall, if they've already been issued I-20s, there's a real chat, uh, a real a conversation needs to happen immediately with uh, programs on campus about 
delivering their courses to these students, the need for those to be in person, all but one course per term. So that's a larger conversation that needs to happen on campuses, campuses and it does have immediate impacts on how uh, in the admissions process, uh, you communicate with uh, students that have already applied to programs they thought they were going to be able to start uh, at your university, whether you told them they were online or not. Uh, that's another question entirely, but certainly this could come as a potentially negative implication uh, to them if they all of a sudden find out they've been admitted, got an I-20, about to go for their student visa. This is the time critical point of uh, the season where you need to make sure that all uh, you have all your ducks in a row, not just them, you have all your ducks in a row as a university in terms of you're meeting your legal requirements to the students that you're admitting. Uh, if, you, if a program is only online now, uh, you might not be able to have it on your I-17 as a, as a, as an, as an, an program for which you can issue an I-20. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of hidden potential uh, landmines that can pop up and impact institutions. And so it's a, it's a wise to have a, uh, a larger discussion on campus, not only with uh, your ISSS office, but your international admissions offices, uh, uh, deans and, and directors of programs need to be involved in this conversation. And sooner rather than later, because there are, if you let it hang on too long and with semesters ending, a lot of uh, professors uh, uh, will be leaving, program directors will be leaving, but this is a conversation that needs to happen now uh, that uh, can't be overlooked. So hopefully those conversations are happening on your campus. So let's move on to our second question. And as we uh, do oftentimes, the, the overlap between social media and international education is, can often be, uh, you can pick almost any topic and you can find there's, there's some overlap. This next one is more social media than it is directly international education, but it's one, it's a question that I, I want to get on your radar uh, as international admissions folks in particular, those that are going out recruiting. Some of you uh, may already be using TikTok as part of your uh, uh, international recruitment strategies, uh, but uh, there's, there's, uh, it's, there's always good to keep your ear to the ground as to what's coming next. And part of the question is what comes after this question is what comes after TikTok refers to obviously the the the, the kind of the dodgy uh, political future of TikTok in the United States as well as many Western nations that have bans placed on uh, government employees using TikTok uh, uh, as kind of the um, kind of the minimum ban uh, that we've seen all, we, all the way up to what India's done uh, as completely banning TikTok from uh, app stores and anywhere in the country for, for, from its use happening from for uh, access to it for any of its citizens. Uh, so that is um, that that the, the, there are hesitations. There are almost half the states in the United States have now banned their state employees uh, from using uh, TikTok for uh, for. Uh, for business. Uh, th there are, in some states, there are less stringent restrictions, but th th there's, uh, for example, in Nevada, the state has said, unless it's for, uh, in, uh, for um, a, a primary part of your, of your job uh, to use this tool to, as part of your job function, and for UNLV, we have uh, both an admissions TikTok and uh, campus-wide TikTok, and we have teams for each of those that are, that's their jobs on campus to do this, to use TikTok. Uh, whether that changes, uh, if, if there's a nationwide ban on TikTok, then obviously that would impact us, even though our state says use it, you can't use it unless it's for business purposes uh, on government devices, uh, state-owned devices, that type of thing. Uh, 
So we're, we're in a position of looking at uh, next options here as well. Uh, what is that next big thing coming down the pipe? Uh, ironically, uh, with a lot of the talk politically on what's happening with TikTok and how it may impact uh, ability for users, particularly influencers, to, um, to use that platform for their businesses, uh, you are now seeing, uh, ironically, ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, a Chinese company, ByteDance, is now uh, using uh, or has now developed a new uh, platform called Lemon8. Uh, lemon, the word lemon with the number eight, uh, lemonade type of thing. Uh, so that is their next big thing. And uh, many influencers on who are on TikTok who are kind of putting their thumb in the air and uh, seeing which way the winds are blowing politically are also uh, migrating or uh, duplicating what they're doing on TikTok on their uh, on this new platform, Lemon Eight. So we'll see if that is the next big thing. That it's nowhere near the user base that there already exists. For, say, for example, in the United States. But that's one thing that uh, ByteDance again. Uh, and one article I read, I wrote this week. Uh, I wrote, I read this week. That is actually the basis of this question. Uh, at, can, uh, uh, kind of um, compares uh, what's happening with these other platforms uh, because it's a ByteDance company that's created this Lemon 8 platform. It, they're con comparing it to kind of whack-a-mole uh, from uh, from in terms of what governments are now having to do well who owns this company oh it's the same one that uh, produced tiktok so we probably should ban them as well because it's the same kind of issues that would apply to data security uh and with tiktok would also apply to lemonade same parent company no reason to expect that to be any different because it's by dance's parent company is wholly owned in, in from in china uh is is bound by Chinese state regulations in terms of sharing data upon request of any of its uh, users. So the likelihood is that this would be a conversation we'll hear, keep hearing uh, as long as it's a, a company that's directly connected to China as ByteDance is. So we'll see what happens next. So it's a quick one, but one that I certainly wanted to get into, into the conversation this week that uh, start thinking about what comes after TikTok and uh, uh, what you want to get yourself into and what you don't. Uh, what you, it's easy enough to replicate content on uh, across different platforms, and most people who post on TikTok are already using those same videos on Reels, on Instagram or Facebook, uh, but also and potentially YouTube Shorts. It's very similar platform, similar styles and formats, and that type of thing. Minor differences, but easy to to replicate your that content across. So not necessarily redoing your entire content strategy, but redoing potentially minor tweaks here and there, depending on what the new platforms require. But uh, certainly th good, good to start thinking uh, about what the future might look like post-TikTok. And the final question of the day, will government reforms in the UK and Australia that are, are, are pending uh, hurt international education efforts in those countries? Uh, we've, uh, we've been talking about the battle that's been going on in the uh, Sunak government in the UK for a number of uh, months now. Uh, with the split uh, that has appeared within the party, Conservative Party in the UK, between uh, the Home Office uh, under Suella Braverman and uh, the Education Secretary, uh, uh, the International Education Champion, having very different views on the issue of net migration. And the net migration factor here is what is driving a lot of the potential 
uh, damage. The prime minister himself, uh, Rishi Sunak, had uh, used language that uh, in his early days of his uh, prime ministership uh, had used language that was seen as potentially damaging to uh, international education efforts when he said that uh, uh, we shouldn't be allowing any international student that comes in for low quality degrees uh, or going to institutions that are not quality, uh, uh, that do not offer quality programs. So that didn't, that was kind of a signal that maybe that was where the wind was blowing in the UK. And the issue primarily has centered around net migration numbers, which were off the charts, uh, 30, 40% growth in the last year or two, uh, where that has boiled down to what, what in the UK they call net migration of they have international students lumped in with net migration when the reality is most of them don't stay. Uh, and that what has happened is that many of these, uh, many of the huge growth that the UK has seen in recent years, uh, certainly even during the pandemic, has been for their one-year master's degree programs, which are seen as more attractive, less time, less cost, even though they're expensive. Uh, it's less cost because it's one year instead of two years, as it would be in the U.S. or most other countries, uh, that uh, they've succeeded in, in attracting quite a large number of uh, new international students in the last couple of years that coming specifically for these one-year programs. But they're also, these same students, the reason we've had this spike in net migration numbers in the UK has been because they're bringing their family with them, uh, spouses and dependents. So what that has done is it's uh, caused a, uh, this rise because international students are counted in to net migration numbers, uh, their dependents and their sp spouses are as well. So those that, as those numbers go up, the alarm bells start going off politically. It's like, oh, we've got too many immigrants coming in that we can't handle. They're, try they're trying to control their net migration numbers because they're an island. There's limited uh, opportunities for them to come in and stay. Uh, so uh, the impact on social services, all of these things uh, are the excuses that are, are, are usually made when limits are put on uh, the migrants that come in. So uh, reality is uh, the government seems to be very close to making those limits on uh, prohibiting, not just uh, limiting, but prohibiting international students coming for one-year master's programs because they're only in the country for one year, though they have the ability to work after they're done through the post, uh, the graduate work route, uh, they, uh, the graduate route, they uh, don't want their, their dependents and spouses coming with them. So that is going to turn off uh, potentially, um, well, there's a 30 to 40% increase in net migration numbers uh, because of the uh, rise of the number of uh, international students coming for the one-year master's programs. I don't know the exact numbers that is, but again, it's, it's a signaling thing too. Uh, we felt that in the U.S. when... Uh, 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 when President Trump in 26, 2017, right after he took office, imposed the, what were called the Muslim travel bans to seven countries, that that was seen as um, a demonstration of country of a country's perspectives on not just those seven countries, but on anything international, uh, not just anything Muslim, but anything anybody international that might be looking to come, uh, anything anybody who's not a citizen that got lumped in in terms of how that move by the government impacted prospective students and parents' views of, of our country, that we were seen as less welcoming, uh, where there were restrictions in place, it was going to be harder to get in as an international student. Even though you might not be from one of those seven countries, it was going to be seen as harder and less welcoming. So this might have a similar impact, even though it's targeting 
one-year master's degree students, which are though a growing and larger part of the total international students that are in the UK. They represent uh, a government making a decision that, hey, you can come, but your, your family can't, uh, which um, for some families is impossible to make that decision to cut ties. You, the, the, the spouse that is coming to work or to, to study uh, is, is, may need to be, have their, their, their spouse and children with them for whatever reason. Uh, and that now, if this happens, will no longer be possible. So it's an impact directly on students that might have been planning to come this fall uh, that may no longer be able to because of this uh, uh, or this government decision that is pending that could prohibit their, their, their spouse's independence from coming. Uh, then it has that knock-on effect, as I said, of saying this is a British government decision to eliminate certain groups of people from entering into the United States, into their into the United Kingdom. So that is, is seen as a potential significant uh, roadblock to future growth in in the UK. So it's it's uh, as uh, as I said back in 2009 when uh, Theresa May's government eliminated uh, the post-study work visa. That uh, was seen as kind of a two steps back uh, for the country uh, in terms of repairing its, uh, of it in, in terms of its reputation abroad, that they, it was no longer welcoming for students who wanted to stay and work. Uh, and that impacted growth for quite a bit. It was much more minimal than they perhaps had hoped. But when the previous government came in and reinsta reinstated the two-year post-study work visa, that really was a good sign to the rest of the world that, hey, UK is open for business again. So this sign, if it happens by prohibiting um, spouses and dependents of uh, students coming for one-year master's programs could be a very significant challenge to that. Uh, so that's that's what's happening in the UK. In Australia, you've been seeing stories that we've been sharing uh, regularly uh, here on the Roundup uh, and in the newsletter where uh, the in Australia, they made the decision early on uh, or during the pandemic to allow students to work more than the 40 hours every two weeks uh, that the, the, the traditional immigration regulations allow. Uh, that restriction lifting uh, during the pandemic has, has caused uh, a lot of uh, what they call the two-stage migrants that, uh, that come for education, but long-term goal is they want to stay and they really don't work is just or the study part is just ancillary to why they're really in the in the in the country to begin with and that's to become workers and eventually permanent residents so that's led to uh, uh, calls of a lot of abuse in the system that's led to obviously uh, students coming in that are also putting strains on uh, housing stock uh, that uh, was already limited and during the pandemic got even smaller uh, so as kind of caused a lot of ancillary or knock-on effects, so to speak, of them coming in. So the review of uh, a recent government uh, panel uh, had in, as suggested a number of reforms to the current migration system that would uh, put back in place the restrictions on work, uh, amount of work that could be done back to the 40 hours per two weeks. And that's work off campus that students in the UK and Australia, most of major destinations have in place for international students. Obviously, we don't allow that 
uh, traditionally for international students in the U.S. Uh, to work off campus unless it's part of their practical training time. They have to be on campus uh, for work opportunities for them to have uh, any work opportunity <laughs> or a chance to work on work while they're here before they graduate or unless it's a curricular practical training time. So uh, the what the what the impact is going to be seen, uh, and we've had uh, some uh, some commentators from uh, uh, Australian universities uh, say organizations say that the the Australia's migrant system is a Ponzi scheme that it's not fit for purpose that it fails to attract the most highly skilled migrants and fails to enable businesses to efficiently access workers. Uh, and there's uh, the evidence of exploitation that we, we've talked about, uh, risk of an emerging permanent, permanent temporary underclass that have got just come for these work opportunities via a study, 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 study option, uh, usually through a vocational option. So the restrictions are probably going to hit hardest on the vocational sector, uh, which obviously universities have, have higher academic standards than the vocational sector. Uh, which is just uh, uh, coming to do get get some skills to be able to do a job, so we'll see whether that happens. But certainly the impact on in the short term is that it's going to be seen as uh, restrictions on migration uh, are going to be seen negatively in the wider world um, and could potentially have negative implications for Australian universities. So uh, two of the major destinations right now are facing these kinds of questions, and, uh, and it may have an impact on in, in our. Uh, positively for us if we don't make too many more restrictions uh, for incoming students then maybe that'll happen uh, but we'll see what see what, what what moves the needle really in this country if, if, if what's happening in the UK and Australia impacts uh, future student flows uh, to the US maybe upticks in graduate students that might have been going to the UK may consider us in the US now maybe maybe not who knows but may look may force them to look at other destinations so we'll see what happens with that but a uh, lot to, lot to keep our our ears and eyes around and We'll talk more about these topics in the coming weeks. So until next time, we wish you the very best and have a great day. Cheers.